1: Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Paddy Neumann tests his solar-powered electric metal field rocket in space. But first up, here's the news. Physician, Zap Thyself, is self-experimentation mad science? In the MIT Technology Review, Antonio Regalado reports how microbiologist Brian Hanley had his thigh muscle injected with copies of growth hormone-releasing hormone genes and zapped to make the muscle cells incorporate the genes. He hopes that his stunt will not only slow his own ageing, but show investors that his therapy could save the lives of people suffering from HIV. Research suggests that human growth hormone can boost the immune system and increase muscle production in people suffering from HIV infection, and also people suffering wasting from ageing. Human growth hormone also increases the amount of ATP throughout the body, improving conversion of food to energy and thus improving energy levels. Human growth hormone therapy can restore strength and stamina. Growth hormone releasing hormone stimulates the pituitary gland to release more growth hormone. It also appears to have an array of other roles, including enhancing the immune system itself. 60-year-old Dr. Hanley founded Butterfly Science, a company dedicated to gene therapies to treat ageing. Dr. Hanley wanted to show that instead of million-dollar laboratories, gene therapy can be conducted safely and cheaply in the same setting as plastic surgery. In the US, the Food and Drug Administration requires companies to seek an authorization called an Investigational New Drug Application, before giving any new therapy to people. Dr. Hanley argues that if he's experimenting on himself then he doesn't need that authorization because he's not posing any risk to the public. Dr Hanley spent several years designing rings of DNA called plasmids to carry the growth hormone-releasing hormone genes before sending the design out for a commercial wet printer to make it for him. A wet printer makes DNA from scratch based on a computer-aided design. The scientific supply company sent back two doses of the DNA plasmids for only... In the past, many researchers have used viruses to get DNA inserted into cells, but it's sometimes dangerous and not always accurate. Dr. Hanley used electroporation instead, where cells open up to allow foreign DNA inside when a brief electric current is passed through them. Once the plasmids are inside, the rings of genes float inside the nucleus, without becoming a permanent part of the cell's DNA. The cell starts producing the proteins the plasmids code for. In this case, human growth hormone releasing hormone. The effect lasts from weeks to months. In August 2016, the National Institutes of Health in the USA used DNA plasmids to inject genes from the Zika virus into people ...to stimulate an immune response that would produce antibodies against the coating of the Zika virus... ...but without zapping the volunteers. Brian Hanley was the first human to experience electroporation. Dr. Hanley won approval from the Institute of Regenerative and Cellular Medicine in Santa Monica, California... ...a private institutional review board that furnishes ethics oversight of human experiments. In the application by his company to increase growth hormone-releasing hormone levels to more youthful levels, Dr. Hanley didn't indicate to the board that he planned to be the subject himself, because he figures who has more informed consent than he does as the designer of the experiment. He's been studying it for years. The problem with self-experimentation is that a researcher's objectivity might be compromised, particularly when they hope to develop a product from the result. There's a conflict of interest. Dr. Hanley first tried the electroparesis ZAP in 2015, without the plasmids and without anaesthetic, and described the sensation as torture. When he had his injection with growth hormone-releasing hormone plasmids later that year, he also had the surgeon administer a local anaesthetic and tranquilizer making the electroperesis zap bearable. Three weeks later, he visited world-renowned genomics expert George Church at Harvard University. Dr. Hanley was given a desk for a few weeks, and they studied his blood. Dr. Hanley's growth hormone-regulating hormone levels were elevated, which strongly suggests the treatment worked. However, Professor Church says the results are not yet definitive. Dr. Hanley had a second treatment in 2016 and Antonio Regalado says Dr. Hanley seems very energetic. The $10,000 price to get a scientific supply company to have your DNA design made on its wet printer will continue to become cheaper as the wet printers themselves get cheaper. You can imagine as the price goes down for the wet printers, that the temptation for people without the backing of giant companies and government grants to try self-experimentation will go up. I expect to see wet printers in citizen scientists biohacking labs around the world in the next few years. Electroparesis is a temporary insertion of new genes, which makes it seem all the more suitable for trying things out. Professor Church warns against self-experimentation, but seems happy to test your blood, if you decide to hack your genes. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Nemesis by Jonathan Colton.
0: It's an amazing smile. Even the suit has teeth. Everything flash and guile With nothing underneath Except a small black heart That no one sees but me I've been watching, I can see you start to wonder Could it be that you need me To keep you out, to run you faster Promise me you'll let me be the one worst of all your enemies. Pretending you're a friend to me, say that we'll be nemeses. Being a brilliant man, going to great expense, devising a master plan. Doesn't make much sense Unless you find the one You're destined to destroy Now that you're here I don't seem that crazy, do I? Could it be that you need me To keep you out, to run you faster? Promise me you'll let me be the one The worst of all your enemies Pretending you're our friends to me Say that will be nemesis. Ah oh yes, my old friend You are a master of this game The hidden blade When you pretend That you don't even know my name Well played It's hard to tell If you even notice me Maybe it's just as well It's better you don't see The way I'm running Just to keep your back in view In your shadow Waiting for the perfect moment Could it be that you need me To keep you out To run you faster Promise me you'll let me be the one, the worst of all your enemies. Pretending you're a friend to me. I say that we'll be never soon.
1: That was Jonathan Colton and John Roderick singing Nemesis. You can find Jonathan Coulton's music at jonathancoulton.com. And now, electric rockets in space. Paddy Neumann is the chief science officer at Neumann Space. When I last spoke with him, Paddy had designed a solar-powered electric arc spacecraft propulsion system fueled by metal and started a business to develop it. I began by asking him, are you now going to test your electric rocket in space?
3: Yeah, that's true. So we're still doing the development side of things, but we've signed a contract with Airbus Defence and Space to be one of their customers for their Bartolomeo mission platform. Bartolomeo is something that Airbus Defence and Space is running out on the side of the International Space Station. And you can think of Bartolomeo as kind of like like a balcony on the side of the ISS and like all good balconies you can put a bit of stuff out there to store for a little bit and there's an extension cord and you've got the Wi-Fi password, right? So what we've contracted to do with Airbus is to send up 100 kilograms to the side of the ISS. It gets bolted on by one of the robot arms up there and gets plugged in so we've got the power connection and the data connection we need so that we can do our experiments in the external environment, out in space, but in a still a fairly controlled environment, about as controlled as you can really get when you put stuff up in space. This way, we'll be able to do the work we need to do, and because we don't need all of the space that we've been contracted for, we can help other people do things in space by letting them basically crib on as sub-payloads to our payload module
1: and how did this come about
3: this came about because we met the project manager for the Bartolomeo project at a conference in Bremen earlier this year we got talking we were discussing various product market fits what these sorts of payload modules would be would be of interest to various people and we immediately thought of ourselves as someone interested in testing something in space but We didn't think we'd need the entire hundred kilograms of one of the small size boxes, so we we then asked if we bought one of these boxes, could we on sell the the excess space? And the project manager Christian Steimler at Airbus Defence and Space, he went and had a check, and his superiors had no problem with that. And so we decided, okay, we'll we'll start moving forward with this. And over the succeeding few months, we've had a variety of teleconferences and email exchanges and met up again in Guadalajara about a month and a half ago to, uh, to do the final signing of the of the agreement and yeah this way we've, we've got some friends within Airbus but uh, it's not Airbus per se as, as a whole as a corporate body So these people are interested in helping us do what we can and also helping other people do what they can in space but Airbus itself is not particularly interested in doing the small-scale sub payload integration for their product They're more interested in doing what Airbus aircraft are used to doing. If you want to go from Sydney to London, you could go and talk to Airbus and say, I want to go to London, and they'll say, that's fantastic. Would you like to buy an A380 or perhaps an A330? And and you respond with, no, I I just want to go to London on a holiday. And they say, well, that's very good, but uh, please talk to Qantas or uh, British Airways or any of the fine other mobs that have bought aircraft off Airbus. This way... It's somebody else's problem filling the plane, Airbus just sells the plane. Analogously, they've sold us this box to go up into space. We're looking on filling it with other projects for other startups or educational purposes, as well as using it to get our stuff in space. But think of it as kind of like an airliner.
1: So, there must be lots of startups with CubeSats and all sorts of things that will want to take advantage of this.
3: There have been a few, yes. Uh, we're in discussions with a couple of Australian startups to bring up their hardware so that they have more mass allowance than they can have in a regular CubeSat, access to more power for it than they can have in a regular CubeSat, especially access to more communications downlink than they can have in a regular CubeSat, plus they don't have to arrange their own ground stations. All the data comes down through the ISS communication links, and they are rock solid 24-7 communication sound links. We're currently working through the technical standards manual, and we hope to have drafts completed in the next couple of weeks, the current download allowance is about two terabytes per day. And you can do a lot of stuff with that amount of data, yeah.
1: And your own project that's going up, how much force will you be generating on the ISS?
3: We won't be generating a lot of momentum change, especially because we plan on having two diametrically opposed thrusters, so they'll be basically pushing against each other and hopefully the forces will cancel out. It's not because a single individual thruster would be generating a large amount of thrust and thus moving the orbit of the ISS, it's more because, well, we won't be pointing through the centre of mass of the space station. So when we do turn on the thruster, it'll very slowly start to twist the space station about some unknown axis. And we don't want to do that because it'll ruin everyone's plans. It it won't be much turning, but it will be annoying, and we just don't want to be a bad neighbour.
1: So everything should stay in place, but you get all your data.
3: Yeah, everything should stay in place, and also stay pointing in the right direction as well.
1: And how far along will this sort of experiment take you once you've tested it all in space and you've got more information for development?
3: That's an excellent question. It requires a little bit of a digression for an uh, explanation first. NASA has something it calls the technology readiness levels, the TRL ladder, as it gets called. TRL-1 is, I've got this great idea, and TRL-9 is, everyone uses it in space and it's fantastic. And this is a way NASA can have a quick comparison between all the the various things NASA tries to do, such as new and exciting ways of making SOCs work in space, versus new generations of rockets. They all have their own part along the TRL ladder. With our system, parts of it inside the vacuum chamber have worked for a long, long time, so they're TRL-5, TRL-6. Other parts, such as the power supply, have only ever worked at atmospheric pressure, because this way we can just use air to cool things down, so they're at TRL-4. By putting together a module that will work on the space station for a year, this will bump us up to TRL-7. This means that it's worked in the correct environment for an extended period of time. Its next step would be some sort of free flight test be, uh, because that's one of the uh, requirements of TRL-8. 8. TRL-8 8 is it's mature enough that you can use it on something in space.
1: And your system can use a large range of metals as a fuel, what are you choosing for the experiment?
3: We haven't quite figured that one out yet. One of the things we'd like to do is have a sort of a carousel or a magazine sort of system so that we can test different materials for different durations and different times so that we can, say, start off with magnesium and then when we've used up the magnesium cathode move on to titanium or molybdenum or carbon or any of the other materials we've identified in ground tests. One of the interesting ones we'd like to test are some of the grades of stainless steel because some of the interesting materials we'd like to test include the various grades of stainless steel Because stainless steels are primarily iron with a large nickel component in them and various amounts of chromium, vanadium, molybdenum, various different metals depending on the grade of stainless. We'd like to test them because they're a fairly cheap and easily available simulant for what nickel-iron asteroids are made out of. Again, primarily nickel and iron with cobalt and chromium and vanadium mixed in.
1: How long will it take? When will you be finished with the experiment?
3: We'll be doing a lot of ground development over the next uh, few years. Our current payload launch slot is the end of 2018. This is is of course a payload launch slot, it's a launch window. Launch windows are subject to slip. We might wind up going up later on in 2019, you have to accept this fact. We are contracted to be on station on orbit for one year so we hope to have most of that time Operating our thruster, operating the other experiments that are sharing our module, and sending data back to Earth. After that year, well, during that year we will be learning from what data we're getting, we'll be iterating our design, we'll be doing other tests on the ground. Because our main thrust over the next couple of years is to get something that works reliably and can go up in in space. As we do those tests, we're going to find new and interesting things to test. So we look to have other experiments going in parallel so that we can continue to iterate, continue to develop, continue to improve our system so that, well, after we do our first launch, we might do another launch a year later on or two years later on with a next generation prototype and test those improvements in space as well.
1: For the listeners who are new to Neumann Space, briefly, How does your rocket system work?
3: In a nutshell, our rocket behaves like the bastard child of an arc welder and a spray coater. In an arc welder, you have a positive part of the circuit, the anode, whatever you clamp the big jumper lead clampy thing onto, the, the bits you're trying to weld together. And you've got the negatively charged cathode, which is the welding rod. When you bring the welding rod close to the weld piece, what happens is the charge difference creates a very strong electric field in the air, and that field is strong enough to rip apart the electrons from the atoms in the air molecules and you get a conducting pathway of electrons moving from cathode to anode. This lets a current flow through the cathode which heats it up and causes material to boil off the surface of the cathode and then you get these ionized species the ionized iron and carbon from the welding rod being deposited onto the weld piece and creating the actual physical weld. Our system works similar to that We've got our negatively charged cathode as a disc or a a cylinder, and we have our positively charged anode as another cylinder, but that one that is hollow. Like imagine a baked bean can. You take off the top and the bottom get rid of the baked beans. You have a hollow cylinder for the anode, and it's concentric and coaxial, so they're basically lined up in parallel. And the anode uh, has the cathode put a little bit in towards the bottom of it. Not a long way, just a little when you strike the arc and there's a couple of different ways of triggering it we use an electrical system from a triggering electrode when you trigger the arc you create the hot electrons necessary to start the arc going much like with the arc welder you have that electrical breakdown in the air with all the electron side in the flow we generate those electrons with a short sharp electric pulse this electrical pulse, the triggering pulse, effectively short circuits between the cathode and anode, allowing the uh, the power stored in the capacitor bank to travel through this short circuit and discharge the capacitor bank. As it travels parts of the cathode heat up and you get plasma being created from the cathode material. This plasma is accelerated and ionized and ejected away from the local cathode surface at a in a fairly narrow cone, and because you've had this these, this plasma moving away so quickly, you get uh, recoil. You get thrust. It's just like you know, you fire a bullet out of a gun; the gun moves backwards. We have the exact same physics happening uh, as recoil of a gun as the exhaust coming out of a chemical rocket. We're just using different physics to accelerate the exhaust.
1: So you're using solar panels to create electricity to boil off metal that's then ejected at high speed into space, pushing the rocket the other way.
3: That's pretty much it in a nutshell, yeah. We've got this really cool drive that can run on anything, kind of like a diesel engine. You play around with the intake manifold right on the diesel engine, you can can run on pretty much any liquid hydrocarbon. However, no one's going to want to buy a new type of engine off you unless it's been tested in the proper environment, and for us that's space. We've contracted with Airbus Defence and Space to put it in that environment for a year. And we have excess capacity and we're able to on-sell that to other interested people. So if anyone out there in radio land would like to try and put something up in space for a year, then please feel free to get in contact with us.
2: Well,
1: Paddy Neumann, thank you very much.
3: It's been a pleasure, Ian. Thank you for your time.
1: That was Paddy Neumann, Chief Science Officer of Neumann Space, preparing to send his device to the International Space Station. A big thank you to Andrew from Melbourne for his monthly donation. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? Go to the website and click the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight CCCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on ...on Diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords... ...so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering... ...next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
2: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate...